Well, hello friends and happy Easter. Welcome into this online space for a time of learning and exploration together. My name's Brad, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And today we're gonna to talk about a guy who because of his involvement in the first Easter story got stuck with an unfortunate nickname. So let me ask you this. Did you ever have a nickname? Maybe one that you got in childhood or one that came out of a big event in your life? They're not always kind and not always true, but nicknames have a way of sticking, especially if they're embarrassing ones. I remember in my elementary school, it caught on to give each other nicknames where we took the first letter of your first name and the first letter of your last name and we swapped them out. So if, for example, your name was Parminder here, your nickname at my elementary school would have been Harminder Peer. Get it? It's, it's pretty unoriginal, right? But some nicknames from that period stuck. For example, if you take the first letter of my first name, Brad, and you swap it out with the first letter of my last name, Sumner, you get, sadly, Bumner. And that one was just funny enough to stick around for a little while, so thanks, guys. But nicknames are not just a recent thing. Biblical characters get them as well, and that's part of the Easter story that we're going to look into today as we wrap up our series, Disillusioned, What to Do When You Doubt. And we've been looking at the stories and experiences of people who are unsure in their faith, who are seeking and struggling, but who want to know more about Jesus, and maybe that's you, and if so, I want you to know that you're welcome here on this journey with us. And we want to give you some handholds for what to do in the middle of a place like a Christian community where it can seem, on the surface anyhow, that people are so darn confident about things like the resurrection. But let's remember that even the original disciples were not confident about what to do after the resurrection. Take, for example, the accounts in the Gospel of John. Uh, that's one of the early accounts of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the account in John about the first Easter. If you have your Bible, or if you're on the Jericho Ridge app, there's a Bible there. Turn with me to John chapter 20, where we're going to see how the first followers of Jesus reacted to the resurrection. They hear the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and they respond not with soaring faith, but they actually lock themselves up in a room because they are afraid. Let's pick up the story of that first Easter Sunday evening in John chapter 20, verse 19, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, and suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them, and he sent them with the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Jesus invites those who have followed him most closely for the past three years to step out of that place of fear, the place of incredulity or disbelief, and into a place of peace and joy 
and confidence. And this begins to be possible because of the presence of the risen Christ and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, living in them and with them. So this actually is an amazing Easter Sunday gathering. But there's one teensy itsy bitsy problem. And that is that Thomas, Thomas Didymus, or Thomas the Twin is his nickname, one of the 12 disciples, he isn't there with the group on that first Easter Sunday. He doesn't get the chance to see the risen Christ. And because of this, he's about to get a nickname that sticks with him for centuries. People still use it today when they refer to him. They call him Doubting Thomas. But his nickname, I'm gonna to argue today, is pretty unfair based on what we know of Thomas from the writer of the Gospel of John. So let's rewind the clock a little bit from this scenario and get to know this guy a little bit. Outside of a list of disciples, we first meet Thomas in a scene in John chapter 11. And at this point, Jesus has had repeated run-ins with the theological and political leadership of his day, such that he is persona non grata. He's not welcome in and around the region of Jerusalem. In fact, he's not safe there even because people want to kill him. And so Jesus and his followers mount a retreat back across the Jordan River so that he can escape this persecution. But there's one challenge, and that is that we read one of Jesus's very close friends, a man named Lazarus, has become deathly ill, and he's very close to death. And like a good friend, even in spite of the danger, Jesus really wants to go and see him. Now the other disciples counsel Jesus that this would be unwise, that his life would be in danger from those who are plotting to kill them, and they're right. There is a very real and present danger to Jesus and to them. But in John chapter 11, verse 16, Thomas, speaks up and says to Jesus, let's go too, and we will die with Jesus. See, Thomas is expressing his willingness to head right into the danger zone. So I wanna to put to bed this notion that this guy is a coward. He's not fickle. He's not a wimpy snowflake of a disciple, as is sometimes implied by his nickname. For the sake of love and friendship with Jesus, Thomas is willing to risk his own life to stand by Jesus in that moment of friendship. And so if we wanna give him a nickname in that moment, I would suggest it might be something more like Thomas the Brave, because he actually shows devotion and courage where other disciples seem to lack it. So that's the first time we really hear from Thomas. Fast forward a few more chapters to John chapter 14. Jesus is gathering with his disciples for what we know of as the Last Supper. And he's sharing a meal with them. And he's sharing the hard truth that he's going to have to pass through death in order to defeat death. And Jesus knows that when he emerges victorious from the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, his victory over the powers of darkness will have made open a way for you and me to be reconciled and united with God. And so Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples about what it means to trust God, to experience the hope of eternal life that starts now and goes on forever with God. And to be fair, the language that Jesus uses is a bit esoteric and confusing. And so none of the disciples in that moment want to confess their ignorance 
of what Jesus is talking about. They just nod and smile like sometimes people do at church. Jesus is going on about, I'm going to prepare a way for you, that God has a house in which there are many rooms for them and you know how to get to that place. But here again, we hear the voice of Thomas. He's the one that sticks his hand up and asks the question in John chapter 14, verse six. He says, uh, Jesus, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? I really love the frank honesty of Thomas. He just flat out says, Jesus, I don't get it. I have no idea what you're talking about. To which Jesus responds, not with a rebuke, but with a powerful statement of identity in John chapter 14, verse six. He says in response to Thomas's question, hey Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And any careful and observant Jew listening to this would have heard that I am statement as a reference to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus, in this moment and by his actions and his response gently to Thomas, identifies himself to Thomas and others as God. And he says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have seen the very face of God. See friends, Jesus is God with skin on. And Thomas is the only one of the disciples who is honest enough to put his doubts and his questions and his ignorance on full display and say, uh, that's a really hard thing, Jesus, I don't get it. And so if I had to give Thomas a nickname in this moment, I would call him Thomas the Honest because he asks good questions where others just hide under the veneer of pretending to understand what Jesus is saying. Thomas just comes right out with his doubts. I love that poem Malkit Geit says of Thomas that he is the courageous master of the awkward. And as a reward for Thomas's vulnerability, Jesus makes an invitation. It's a powerful one that's still on the table for you and I today. Jesus says, I'm the way, come and see. Walk the pathway of life with me, learn from me. I am the way maker, I am the truth speaker. I am the one who shows you what God is like. And so friend, I wanna make sure that you have a clear invitation to explore and experience that kind of life this Easter. If you've never placed your feet on the path of walking deeper into learning who Jesus is and what he means, I wanna invite you to start that journey today. If you're with us on the Church Online platform, just click on the I wanna follow Jesus button that's coming up for you now. And if you're on YouTube or tell us, simply email prayer at jerichoridge.com and we would be happy to help you start in your spiritual journey today. And you'll also wanna stick around because starting next weekend, we'll be walking through the Gospel of Matthew and answering the powerful question, who is Jesus? And what does that mean for you and me? And you're gonna be hearing lots of stories of transformation and hope from people who call Jericho Ridge home. So I wanna extend an invitation for you to join us and not miss out on that series. So after these two encounters though, 
hopefully you begin to see why I think it's unfair that the nickname that sticks with poor Thomas is Doubting Thomas and not Brave Thomas or Honest Thomas. But let's look together at the text in John chapter 20. Again, you'll recall that the disciples, all but Thomas, on that first Easter Sunday evening, had Jesus stand amongst them, and Jesus shows them his hands and his side. And then, nothing happens. A full week goes by. And we pick up the story in John chapter 20. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation in verse 24 to verse 29. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hand and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. So eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing amongst them. Peace be with you, Jesus said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Well, I don't know about you, but I have sympathy for Thomas's desire to seek additional proof. He isn't asking for anything special or unique. He just wants the opportunity that the other disciples already had. A week prior, they get the chance to see with their own eyes, and they get an invitation to see the wounds in Jesus' hands and his side. And I'm not sure what they did or did not do that first week after the first Easter, but eight days later, we find that they're still huddled up behind locked doors in the upper room. They've seen that Jesus is alive. They don't lack the proof of that, but they do lack courage. And Thomas, on the other hand, doesn't seem to lack courage. He just lacks proof. But again, Thomas isn't asking for special treatment. He simply wants what others have had. He wants his own encounter with Jesus. And in a moment of immense and tender mercy, Jesus meets Thomas in that place. Jesus comes to the disciples in the upper room and he invites Thomas not just to see, but to put his fingers into the nail wounds in Jesus' hands and place his hand into the wounds in Jesus' resurrected side. And we don't actually know if Thomas took Jesus up on that offer. 17th century Italian painter Caravaggio imagines Thomas poking his finger right up there in Jesus' side while Peter looks on. And we don't know if he needed that level of proof. Maybe seeing Jesus was enough for Thomas. What we do know is that that encounter led Thomas to the place where he cried out, my Lord and my God. It's a powerful dual statement that Thomas makes, my Lord. In other words, Thomas comes to the place where he sees Jesus as his leader, the one who has control over his life. 
and then my God. In other words, Thomas has come to the place where he says, Jesus, I see and I acknowledge you as divine. You are God who has come to set the captives free. I see Jesus, you are the one who has come to defeat death and the grave. My Lord and my God. Thomas calls it like he sees it once he sees it. So where then are the poems or songs about Thomas's great declaration of resurrection truth? Where are the songs about his declaration of Jesus' resurrection identity? Where's the nickname Thomas the Prophetic, the one who bears witness to the reality of the resurrection? Because see, Thomas actually is one who sees what is really going on. And I love Jesus' response to Thomas. You believe, Thomas, because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. We've been talking over the last couple of weeks about how some of us are conditioned to see doubt as negative. And when that's the case, we can read Jesus' rebuke, uh, Jesus' words to Thomas as words of rebuke. But they actually read as neutral. Jesus seems to be simply stating a fact. Thomas saw and Thomas believed. But here's the most incredible part of the story to me. That last phrase is not for Thomas and it's not already for those already in the room where it happened. It's actually aimed straight at you and me. You see, if seeing is believing, then only those who got the chance to physically place their physical hands into the physical nail marks have any shot at this thing that we call faith. But Jesus makes the explicit point to extend something powerful to those like you and me who will never have the chance that Thomas had to see him. Jesus doesn't say to the rest of us, oh, too bad, so sad, you weren't around when I was alive. Quite the opposite. Jesus speaks a word of blessing, of unique blessing over those of us who have not had the opportunity to see his resurrected body with our own eyes or hear his resurrected voice with our own ears. Writing to people who had also never had the privilege of meeting Jesus firsthand, the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse eight, you love him even though you have never seen him and though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and your hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. So friend, when some of you think about the resurrection, you might wonder to yourself, how could this be true? And I want to assure you that Jesus is not frightened by your skepticism and neither are we. Jesus is as comfortable with your incredulity as he was with Thomas's. Jesus will meet you in that place. I love how Canadian uh, singer and songwriter and author Steve Bell talks about his faith journey. When he looks at Thomas, he sees not a doubter, but a kindred spirit or a patron saint. Bell writes this, in our understandable doubts, you don't hear Jesus rebuke, you hear in the story of Thomas, his blessing. See, blessing 
is speaking goodness and faith and life and promise into the life of another. And when we do this, for example, as parents, it's not because our kids have already achieved goodness. If you're doing that, that's award or reward. Blessing is when you desire good things to come to fruition in the lives of those you love, but they haven't come there yet. And the same is true with God. When Jesus speaks a blessing over you and says, blessed are you who believe without seeing me. Jesus is pronouncing a word of blessing over your life and the seeds of faith that are planted there as they begin to germinate and grow. Listen to the words of Steve Bell again. Jesus has blessed you with your tiniest seed of faith in the state that you find yourself right now, not because it has grown, but so that it might grow. And so friends, this Easter, if you'd permit me, I would love to speak a word of blessing over you. And you can even just take a posture and stretch out your hands to receive this. May you be blessed with the courage to speak out your questions and say, I do not know the way. Jesus will meet you there. May you be known as the master of the awkward question as you speak the words that others dare not say. The Spirit will guide you into truth. May you have the sense to put your finger on the nub of things, knowing that we cannot love something only with our minds. We must also love it with our hearts and our whole selves. God will meet you there. May you know the blessing of seeing and believing And may you also know the blessing of believing without seeing. Faith will meet us there. May you know the blessing of incredulity and the challenge of understandable doubts. And in these places and spaces of doubt and questions, may you know the blessing of the one who loves you and who gave up his life that you might know his love.